0: I'm Mark O'Connell, and you're listening to Far Fetched, a podcast about my largely unpaid but mostly rewarding career as a writer. In this episode, I'm starting out with the two words that were the most important words in the English language to me back in 1978 Film school. Film school. Those two words have always carried an enormous emotional weight for me and I know they do for millions of other people who believe that if you get into a good film school and you get your degree in film, that you're going to have this amazing, solid gold career ahead of you. After all, two of the most famous film school brats around, George Lucas and Steven Spielberg, had just had huge, huge mega hits with Star Wars and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. If film school could work wonders for them, then it could work wonders for anybody. Well, around this time, the late 70s, I was graduating from high school and making plans for college. And I consider myself pretty lucky at the time because a very close by college, the University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee, had a film school. They had a film program. I was overjoyed when I discovered that because I didn't really think I could swing USC or any of the other Southern California film schools. So the fact that I had a bona fide film program that was kind of close to where I lived and wasn't ridiculously expensive. It was just like perfect. It was magic for me. So, of course, I eagerly signed up for the film program at UW-Milwaukee and set out to start my amazing career. Well, the excitement didn't last long. When I took my first class introduction to filmmaking, I discovered that the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee film program was not about making narrative films. They were about making non-narrative films, experimental films. You cannot imagine how disappointing that realization was to me. It was horrible. To me, what is is the point of making a movie if it doesn't have a narrative? I don't get it. I've never gotten it, and I never will get it. I mean, there are some exceptions, of course. Everyone who's gone to film school, I think, has probably seen Salvador Dali's film, A Chen Andalu. And God knows that guy can create some images that will sear your brain. But still, there's no story being told. And when I watch a movie, I want a story being told. So I I get into this program, and they're focused on experimental film, which basically is another word for films that nobody will ever want to see. Here's how it all started out. First class, Introduction to Filmmaking, our professor gives us an assignment. Now, the way things were set up, we had an equipment room. Students could check out film cameras, movie cameras, and buy film and get the film developed right there. So it was all very efficient and economical for all of us students. So our first assignment for Introduction to Filmmaking was check out a camera, buy a roll of film, go outside, turn around 360 degrees, pick out the most interesting thing you saw in those 360 degrees, take a shot of it with your movie camera then walk to that thing that you just took a shot of, and once you arrive at that thing, take another 360-degree rotation, decide what's the most interesting thing you saw, and take a shot of that. Then you walk to that thing you just took a shot of, and you do another 360-degree circle, and on and on and on, until you run out of film. Well, you can see the problem there. Number one, you're not telling a story. Number two... What you get when you take films like that is you get a lot of static shots of trees and buildings. And here's the thing about movies and movie cameras. They record movement. Trees and buildings do not move, at least in my experience. So it was pretty easy to guess what all of us students were going to come back with <laughs> for the next class. We were going to come back with really stupid, boring movies with shots of trees and buildings. That's exactly what we got. So we're sitting in class and there are, I don't know, maybe 25 students in this class. We're sitting in class and we screen the first student's assignment and it's, as I've said, it's just static shots of trees and buildings. Absolutely no interest at all to anybody. So the, the film ends and our professor says, well you did some interesting things there but Here's what I think you could have done differently. You could have... And i he started saying that, and I just said, Excuse me? And I'm not usually like this. It's not like me to interrupt my college professor when he's saying something ridiculous. But I couldn't help myself. I just said, Excuse me? Isn't this the assignment where you just told us to go out and shoot whatever the hell we saw? And the professor says, Yeah. And I said, Well, then how can you critique our films? You didn't give us anything to do. You didn't tell us to do anything. How can you sit there and critique our films? I don't remember his answer. I was so worked up, I think my ears just shut down. I didn't want to hear what this guy had to say. So I didn't become real good friends with that professor. And of course, we all watched our movies and they were all buildings and trees, three minutes at a time. It was horrible. So at that point I realized that I had made a horrible, horrible mistake signing up for this film program. And to this day, I just don't understand it. What is the point of a film program that teaches experimental film? First of all, there's nothing to teach. If you're making experimental film, you're just doing whatever the hell you think of whenever you want to do it in any way you want to do it. There's no, te- You don't need to be taught that. Anybody can do that, and it's always going to be shit. I'm sorry, but it's always going to be shit. So that was my introduction to the UW film program. Got even worse next class I took. The next class I took, we weren't so much shooting our own experimental films as we were screening uh, other people's experimental films. And believe it or not, there are actual superstars in the world of experimental films, something that I still absolutely can't wrap my head around. One of the films we screened that has just never left my head, it was such a horrible experience, was a very long, lengthy take of a fishing rod and reel. And the, the fishing line has somehow come undone and caused this gigantic tangle. And that's all we ever see during this entire movie, except then we see two hands emerge into the screen. And the two hands try to slowly and meticulously unwind all of this tangled fishing line. And then at some point, you start to hear a sound. It's Whoever is trying to untangle the fishing line is apparently muttering to himself as he does this. And that's the whole movie. That was the whole thing. I, I really don't remember how long it lasted. It seems to me that it was like 20 or 30 minutes. And of course, the guy never got the fishing line untangled. It was impossible. So that was the kind of shit we watched in that class. But it got even worse then, because our instructor in that class, uh, of course, had to screen one of his own movies for us. And this one just really, this one just really was off the charts. So our professor's movie starts out with a static shot of a railroad crossing sign. Now just imagine a railroad crossing sign. It's a round yellow sign. It has two large capital R's on it, on either side, and then a big black X right through the middle of the circle, separating the two capital R's. So, just a static shot of a railroad crossing sign. There was no train. There was nothing moving in the shot. Just the shot of the railroad crossing sign. But then he mixed it up a little because he cut away to a shot of a different railroad crossing sign. And then cut away to another shot of a different cr- railroad crossing sign. So, this kept up for a while. And then eventually, you heard uh, the filmmaker's voice going, "Er, er." So you get it right? The railroad crossing signs have rr on them, so he was going er to go along with the rr on the railroad crossing signs i i'm i 'm not making this up. I know it sounds like I must be making this up, but i 'm not making it up. This is what we were subjected to, so the voice keeps going RR, and then eventually it starts going er and suddenly this guy's barking like a dog and and that was his movie and when the movie was over, and he brought the lights back up in the screening room. He said, well, can anybody tell me what that movie meant? And again, I don't know what got into me, because I'm not usually like this, but I just said, is it a driver education film? And I got a big laugh, but that professor did not like me after that. So that was my introduction to UW-Milwaukee Film School. Now, it did have some positive moments, I'll admit, there were a couple of us in the class who shared the same views. We were really dissatisfied with the program and just wanted to try to make narrative films. So so there were a couple of us who would, would try to make every assignment into a narrative film project. I don't know that we, we were always very successful, but we did what we could. And honestly, I, I don't really remember I only remember one film that I made in that program, and I was pretty proud of it. Uh, it was just, I just did a little visual trickery to tell a story that was actually taking place mostly off screen, uh, and it worked, and I think my teacher actually praised me for it, which was amazing, because it was actually telling a story, and he didn't like to tell stories with film, but, you know, so I guess I did all right there. So there, was, there were some high points, but overall, it, it was just not worth it. I, I realized after my freshman year, I had just made a horrible, horrible mistake, and I needed to change directions. Needless to say, I did not last beyond the freshman year at the UW-Milwaukee Film School. I changed direction. I actually did spend some time going to film school in Southern California, but that's a story for another podcast. Eventually, I ended up back in Wisconsin, back at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, because I discovered that they had a program not in film production, but in film theory and criticism. And that seemed like it might be a smart thing for me to do. If I wanted to, if I wanted to make movies, it seemed like this program could help me really understand the language of film and become a better storyteller. So that's what I did. Much to my surprise, it turned out the UW Milwaukee Film Theory and Criticism Department um, had a. They were devotees of a feminist film critic named Laura Mulvey, who very brilliant film critic. I'm not knocking Mulvey at all. But her whole stance is that cinema is built on the male gaze and fragmenting women's bodies, which is true. Her remedy to that was to destroy narrative film. I did not agree with that. I felt like there are other ways to remedy that, with short of destroying narrative film outright. But that was the program I was in, and I was determined to finish it, so I did. It did have a high point, though. At one point, I wrote a paper for one of my classes in that program about the films of Alfred Hitchcock, and I had this theory that Hitchcock chose specific actors to symbolize specific things, Uh, in particular, the four movies he made starring James Stewart and the four movies he made starring Cary Grant. In my paper, I made the argument that all of the characters played by Jimmy Stewart were men who were... Um, somehow overloaded with emotion. They They had a surplus of bad energy in them that had to be eradicated during the course of the movie. While the Cary Grant characters, on the other hand, were the exact opposite. The Cary Grant actors were hollow men. They had serious deficiencies in them. And so their stories were all about remedying that part of the character. And my professor at the time thought it was good enough to publish in a film journal, which I was pretty proud of. I didn't pursue that, though. I'm not really sure why. I think at the time I just thought, well, that's that's uh, irrelevant. That's a distraction. I want to be in production, not not criticism. Nonetheless, I finished the program and got my degree in cinema studies. A couple other good things about my experience at UW-Milwaukee. I don't want to sound like I'm a total, a total grump about it. There were a couple good moments. That that paper that I wrote, that my teacher thought could be submitted to a film journal, that was a really high. That was a real high point. I liked that a lot. The early part of my experience, though, the experimental film production program, there were, there were one or two interesting things there too. For the one thing I remember most is, one of the instructors who I really did not care for, brought in one of his friends uh, one day to class, uh, who was his friend was an actual produced screenwriter, a narrative screenwriter. And I was just blown away. Not only was my teacher uh, friends with a narrative filmmaker, but he was actually willing to bring his friend into class to talk to us experimental film students about telling stories with cinema. And that was kind of an eye-opener for me because I kind of realized, oh, you guy, you, you professor of mine. You, Given the chance, you'd be writing narrative film features in a flash, just to be just like your friend. So I thought that was all kind of interesting. There was also a great experience with uh, a Hollywood movie having a sneak preview screening at UW-Milwaukee. As I remember, it was not put together by the film department because it was a narrative film, of course but I think it may have been sponsored by the English department. I'm not sure. But at any rate, uh, it was a sneak preview showing of a really wonderful movie called Breaking Away about bike racing um, and directed by the great Peter Yates. And not only did they screen the film, but Peter Yates was actually there to do a Q&A afterwards. And I, that was my first real taste of, oh, these people are real. They're human. This guy Peter Yates he's he's interesting, he's funny, he's got some cool stories to tell and he obviously does great work. If you haven't seen Breaking Away, I would recommend it. It's it's a charm it's a charming, goofy, family-friendly comedy with a really big heart. I love it a lot. I've I've seen the movie god knows how many times. It's just it's wonderful. Now, a few months before I began my adventures in film school, I had a chance to reach for the stars, quite literally. In June of 1978, shortly after I'd graduated from high school, Milwaukee had its first ever Star Trek convention. It was called Odyssey One. It took place at the Wisconsin State Fair Park. And it was a pretty huge deal. It it was the first, and it was small. I'm holding the program in my hand right now, the official souvenir program. It has a picture of the Starship Enterprise. Uh, it looks like somebody just snapped a picture off their TV screen because it's very blurry and high contrast. And it says Odyssey 1 in this very cool script. And then it says, official souvenir program, 50 cents. I can't remember what the overall admission to the convention was, but if the program was only 50 cents, I, I get the sense that it was probably pretty affordable. So my my friend John Cash and I, and, and John is... A bigger Star Trek geek than I am, John and I absolutely had to go to Odyssey One. We just had to. So it was a one day deal at the State Fair Park. It was put together by a couple of really ambitious Trekkies uh, in Milwaukee, one of whom I would end up taking classes with at UW Milwaukee a few months later. And they put together a, a pretty good show, as I remember. The dedication in the program says, The opening of Odyssey One culminates nearly three years of effort following the original conception of the project outlined by its producer-director. The convention is dedicated to those of us who believe in something and work to make it a reality. Even if the risks are high, we hope the reward worthwhile. Well, those are pretty stirring words. And hey, they backed it up. Their theme for the first-ever Odyssey One was on special effects in science fiction movies. And their focus was on three of their favorite special effects artists, Douglas Trumbull, who has always been an idol of mine, and I'll have some stories to tell about him later. Doug Trumbull did the effects for 2001 A Space Odyssey, The Andromeda Strain, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and of course Star Trek The Motion Picture, although that movie hadn't been made yet. The second special effects person they were profiling was a man named L.B. Abbott, who did special effects for TV shows, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, The Time Tunnel, Land of the Giants, Lost in Space. And then finally, everybody's favorite stop-motion animator, Ray Harryhausen, who did the animation for Jason and the Argonauts. The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, Mysterious Island, and many, many more. But that wasn't the main event. It got even better. These guys actually managed to get... Two of the original cast members of Star Trek, the original series, to make appearances at this convention. The superstars were Walter Koenig, who played everybody's favorite Russian ensign, Chekhov, and George Takei, who played Mr. Sulu. Now, they were small supporting characters, but both of these guys always made a huge impact in the show. They had small parts, but they made the best of them. And I thought it was pretty cool, and John did too, that they were coming to this sci fi convention. It was a one-day deal, started at 9 a.m., ended at 11 p.m. They had autograph sessions and Q&A sessions with their superstars, Walter Koenig and George Takei. John and I just ate it up. But we had something up our sleeves. I wanted to make a, a movie about a Star Trek fan who was sort of becoming obsessed with Star Trek. So a little bit autobiographical, I guess. And so I brought my movie camera, I brought my sound movie camera to the convention. And at the end of the day, before George Takei and Walter Koenig could leave, we got George Takei on camera saying something like, Captain, the helm won't respond, what should I do? And then I believe we all, and I can't believe I can't remember this. I can't remember if we got Chekhov, but I'm pretty sure we also got Chekhov to just stand in front of a wall and say, Kipton, in his Russian accent. Kipton, the shields are done. What shall we do? Of course, my Star Trek movie never got made, but it was always a kind of a kick that I had movies of these two guys reciting lines of di- dialogue that I had, you know, come up with on the spur of the moment to have them say. Now, the other day I showed this program to my kids and they thought it was pretty funny that I was still hanging on to a program from a science fiction convention that took place in 1978. But there's a reason for it. I got Walter Koenig's autograph in my program. It says, To Mark, Chekhov, Walter Koenig. Here's how they describe Walter Koenig in the program. Despite his boyish looks and effervescent personality, he's often called upon to play neurotic tortured people. But curiously, he says he actually prefers it that way. His favorite role has been Danny, the nut who carries a head around in a hatbox in Night Must Fall. Bet you didn't know that about Chekhov. And here's a little excerpt from the write-up of George Takei. Playing the part of Sulu, the helmsman of the Enterprise, Takei was responsible for guiding the collective destiny of several hundred make-believe explorers. In real life, he steers his talents into a much wider variety of challenging roles, from Shakespearean acting to political organizing. And if you don't know it, George Takei is one of the funnest people to follow on Twitter. I would strongly recommend it. He is just amazingly entertaining. It's fun to think back on that experience at Odyssey One, especially when I think about the fact that I got George George Takei and Walter Koenig to actually act for me on my home movie camera. I got Walter Koenig to sign my program, and neither one of these guys charged me a dime. If that happened today at a Star Trek convention in 2021, I'd be shelling out money right and left to get people's autographs and to get them to talk on camera, which they would never actually do. So it was kind of a magic moment uh, that day at Odyssey One when all these cool things happened. Little did I know that 15 years later, I'd be the special guest at a Star Trek convention. Now there's one more part of my film education that I'll just mention briefly. I guess I was kind of a pioneer. Not only did I attend the first ever Star Trek convention in Milwaukee, I also had a job at the first ever home video rental store in Milwaukee. Yes, I worked behind the counter at a place called, I think, Video Country. And it literally was the first video store in the area It was so primitive that customers would come in and rent VHS tapes or beta tapes of the movies they wanted to watch, but they also had to rent the tape deck because nobody owned one. If you wanted to watch a movie in those early days and you didn't have your own deck, which most people didn't, you'd have to rent the tape and the deck. Now, as an employee, it was incumbent on me to familiarize myself with our selections, And so whenever there was a spare tape deck that hadn't been rented out from the shop, I would take that home with me and take a couple of our videos along. So I had all sorts of free movie nights in my dingy little off-campus apartment uh, using my tape deck from work. It was a very interesting job. As I recall, we had just a handful of titles. A couple that spring to mind are my favorite old science fiction movie, Forbidden Planet, A great, strange, somewhat comic thriller called The Stuntman that I have this strange, strange interest in. I guess because it's a fun movie about making movies. So yeah, very few titles out in the front room, but there was this big, big room in back that you had to be 18 years or older to enter, and we had lots of titles in that room. Come to think of it, those movies were interesting examples of non-narrative filmmaking.